Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. I'm just going to mention this one more time but CrimeCon 2024 tickets are available starting October 2nd at noon Eastern. The event is in Nashville next year from May 31st through June 2nd and if you're a fan of true crime you do not want to miss this event. While I was not able to attend any of the breakout sessions, I heard the panels and sessions were amazing. The speakers such as Gabby Petito's family, one of Ted Bundy's surviving victims, Kathy Kleiner, as well as some big names in true crime media. The entire weekend is filled with fun activities and amazing people, so sign up if you can. Okay, I promise I'll be quiet about CrimeCon until spring of next year. And let's quick cover the business side of things before we get into today's episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Forensic entomology can be traced back to the 13th century in China. As the story goes, a villager was killed by what the village leader believed to be a farming tool. He ordered all the farmers to bring their tools to the center of town and lay them out. Within minutes, flies began collecting on only one of the tools, an indication to the village leader that the sickle, usually used for cutting down plants, had been used to inflict the fatal wounds and ordered the farmer who owned the tool to be taken into custody for the murder. While this story lacks a lot of due process and would never pass as a proper forensic test by today's standard, it does show a very early application for the role of science and nature in solving crimes. Most forensic entomology today is used to establish post-mortem interval, or PMI. This is an estimated amount of time from death until the discovery of the body. Forensic entomologists can use a variety of insect species with known life cycles to determine a time frame a body has been exposed to the elements. But sometimes entomologists can assist in criminal investigations in other ways. In 2003, a high-profile murder involving five victims of the same family occurred in Bakersfield, California. The prime suspect claimed he was across the country in Ohio at the time of the murders. Could science prove otherwise and provide some form of justice in this case? This is the story of the Harper family murders. On July 8, 2003, a woman named Kelsey Spann drove to the house of her good friend Joni Harper to do a welfare check. Kelsey had seen Joni and her three young children at church on the previous Sunday, but in the 48 hours since she last saw the family, her calls to her friend had gone unanswered. Joni lived in the house with her 70-year-old mother, Ernestine, and her three young children, Marquis, age 4, Lindsay, age 2, and 6-week-old Marshall. It was very out of character for Joni to not answer the phone, and so around 7 a.m. on Tuesday, she arrived at the house and was even more concerned when her attempts to get someone to the front door were unsuccessful. Kelsey attempted to unlock the door with a key she had been given by Joni, 
but the key wouldn't work for some reason. So she walked to the back of the house and found an unlocked patio door. She entered the home and walked into a nightmare. Joni, Ernestine, and all three children had been shot dead. Joni had also been stabbed. Kelsey retreated out of the home and dialed 911. Officers, crime scene technicians, and investigators with the Bakersfield, California Police Department arrived at the house and started processing the dreadful scene. The house had been staged to look like a break-in, but investigators knew this didn't make sense. The main target of the killings appeared to be Joni Harper. She was found face down on her bed, shot several times in her head, back, and neck, and she'd also been stabbed several times. All three of the children were found shot near their mother. Six-week-old Marshall was found with a single gunshot wound to the back and was under a pillow near his, next to his mother. Four-year-old Marquis was found under a sheet on the bed next to his mother, and two-year-old Lindsay was on the floor next to the bed. Ernestine was found in the hallway with a gun she had grabbed for self-defense laying next to her. She had been shot twice in the face and never managed to get a shot off from her revolver. Except for Ernestine, the positioning of the victim's bodies was not consistent with an interrupted burglary. If the burglar had realized the house was occupied, he or she merely had to retreat from the home. And while Ernestine did appear to be responding to something going on in the house, it's likely Joni and the children were killed first, and Ernestine grabbed her gun to respond to the sound of gunshots in her house. That meant the sleeping Joni and her children were likely the first to die and could not have interrupted a burglary take a little sidestep here i did read at least one article that claimed that ernestine was the first victim and to me this doesn't make sense this is actually going to be a murder that occurs in the middle of the day uh, this family had gone to church on this sunday and it didn't say what religion they were but it sounds like they had services both in the morning and the evening on sunday and in between, it was common for the family to go home and to take a rest. And this is July, so it's going to be pretty warm. So I just assume that, you know, with three young children, especially a six-week-old, everybody's going to be tired. Four-year-olds can still take naps, and obviously 70-year-olds like to take naps as well. So the whole family is going to lay down for this nap in the middle of the day between these church services. And so... You know, the, the police aren't going to know it at the time that this murder occurred while the family was napping. But when you look back to that, and we know that now that this is, and we know that because this friend of hers saw Joni and the children at church. It was actually the first time the six-week-old had been brought to church. And so Joni was kind of showing off six-week-old Marshall to everybody at the church. Uh, she had told everybody at church that the family would return for the evening services, but they never did. So this is why you know police have this timeline that this these murders occurred on Sunday afternoon. And so now we have to think of some type of a burglary that's going to occur in the middle of the day in which the family's napping during the middle of the day and a burglar comes in, starts to ransack the house and comes across the sleeping family and decides to shoot and stab and kill them, especially children, including a six-week-old. Again, this just appears rather quickly to the investigators to be a staged scene. And when I read that Ernestine was 
potentially the, the first target, that didn't make sense to me because if she's going to be shot twice in the face, the all of the, the rest of the family, the Joni and the children being found on the bed without, uh, I didn't read anything about any defensive wounds or anything like that to, with Joni. It, I would assume that if you're taking a nap on a Sunday afternoon, you're going to hear a couple gunshots out in the hallway and you're going to be making some type of an effort, whether it be to go through a window or to hide in a closet or something like that to get away from from the shooter. Whereas it makes more sense that if Joni's the intended target and the children are part of that, that the shooter would start there, at which point Ernestine wakes up from her nap hearing these gunshots grabs her gun and starts to come down the hallway and then is ambushed by by the killer so while i read it one way in the article to me it makes more sense and we talked about this just in the the last case with the funeral murders is that if your intended target is in this case Joni and the children why would you start with ernestine and risk the chance that your intended targets survive. And so while I read that one article, I'm gonna look at the crime scene and see it differently. I mean, maybe there was some evidence that I'm not seeing that indicated that the murders occurred in a, in a different order. But from what I saw in the articles, the, the description of the crime scene, to me, it makes more sense that the intended targets, Joni and the children were shot first. Ernestine likely grabbed a gun started walking down the hallway to figure out what's going on with these gunshots and then she's ambushed and killed herself and the house was ransacked as if someone had been trying to commit a burglary but items of value were left in the home and the suspect having killed everyone in the house had no reason to flee the scene without at least taking some items of value so again if we go back to this idea that it's supposedly this burglary gone wrong situation if for some reason this burglar breaks into this house in the middle of the day on a Sunday when people are likely going to be home anyway and starts to commit a burglary then comes across this family again not having to technically kill anyone at that point they but they somehow decide to annihilate everybody in the home at that point not only have they vastly increased their criminal liability they've gone from a burglary to committing five murders and now they're just going to flee this home without anything of value even though at this point now they have potentially all the time in the world and it's it's not as if they heard police sirens coming from a distance you know, the family isn't discovered until two days later so it doesn't make sense to investigators that this was a burglary gone wrong situation and so they're going to realize that murder was the main crime, and they soon narrowed in on the number one suspect, Joni's estranged husband and the father of the three children, a 41-year-old man named Vincent Brothers. Vincent Brothers was born on May 31, 1962, and had worked his way up through the public school system in Bakersfield, California. While he was a respected member of the black community of Bakersfield, few knew that he had a dark side that involved abuse towards women. In 1988, he was arrested for domestic violence and spent six days in jail. His first wife divorced him because of the abuse. Somehow this did not affect his public education career, 
and he married again in 1992 and fathered a daughter during the second marriage. But his second wife would also file for divorce, claiming he was violent and threatened to kill her. These behaviors seemed to go unnoticed by most, and by 1996, he was employed as a vice principal at Bakersfield Middle School. He had earned a lot of respect for his ability to connect to troubled students, especially those of color, and was considered a pillar of the community. And I will say, I saw in different articles uh, that he was a elementary school vice principal. I saw other articles that he was a vice principal of a middle school. I don't know if it's inaccurate reporting or he is gonna move or be forced to move schools after this 1996 incident. So it's possible that he was at a middle school and went to an elementary school or an elementary school that went to a middle school. Again, I like to try to get the facts straight, but when you read in three or four different articles that he's, some say elementary school, some say middle school, I, I'm just gonna report it and then tell you that I'm seeing some different information out there. But behind closed doors, he continued to predate and abuse women. In 1996, a female staff member stated she met Vincent at his house, and Vincent dragged her into the bedroom, hit her, and took photos of her. She tried to call 911, but Vincent grabbed the phone away from her, and then she ran from the home and drove away. She was then subjected to sexual advances at their place of work, and Vincent harassed her with threatening phone calls. When the victim tried reporting this to the Bakersfield police, she later said that an officer told her she would come out on the losing end of the investigation because Vincent was a respected community leader. The school also launched an investigation, but according to the victim, she was advised that continuing with the investigation could jeopardize Vincent's career, and he denied the allegations and the case was considered closed. However, Vincent was transferred to a different school. So we're seeing, you know, whether it be the 1988 arrest where he's actually spending six days in jail it didn't say that there was any police reports from the second marriage uh, just that there was a divorce due to his violent uh, and threatening behavior and then we have this behavior from reported from a co-worker and when she tries to tell the police they basically talked her out of filing a report and she's going to also report it to the school system, which is going to talk her out of really pushing the issue. Now, they did do a quote-unquote investigation into the incident. And from the sounds of it, that consisted of basically asking him, did you do this? To which he said no. And I guess just in a CYA move on their part, they decided to move him to a different school so there wouldn't potentially be issues between this female staffer. Now, I'm not going to applaud either the police department or the school. And again, I'm, I'm getting this information from what she told the media. So I don't have proof that this occurred. I don't have proof that this is what she was told by the police or the school system. But there's clear evidence that he wasn't charged for what he did in 96. There's clear evidence he wasn't fired for what he did in 96. So I am going to put some weight into what the victim of this said and again so I guess I'll give a tiny amount of credit to the school system for not making the female victim of this move schools based on everything I read in this case I almost expected that to be the outcome where the schools told the female victim that she had to go to a different school because of Vincent's behavior so 
tiny bit of credit to the school system for making him go to a different school, but overall, there are so many missed opportunities to hold Vincent accountable for his behavior before what's, what's going to happen here. And Vincent and Joni met soon after while Joni was a basketball player who liked to mentor troubled youth. They were married in January of 2000, but the marriage was annulled nine months later after Joni found out that Vincent had been truthful with her and been married twice before. And it was said there was a lot of infidelity in the marriage as well, that Vincent was constantly going behind Joni's back, meeting up with women, sleeping with women, and she found out about this. And it's going to be one of those situations where kind of love conquers all and and Joni's seems to be in love with Vincent and they continue to see each other and so they did have one child in common while they were married and then while they continue to see each other they eventually have another child which is was Lindsay in 2001 and then they got married again in January of 2003 after learning of Joni's third pregnancy So they have three children together. They've been married once for nine months, and then they get divorced, but they continue to date each other and hang out and have children together. And so by the time they're having their third child together, uh, they decide to give marriage another go. And this doesn't last long because by April of 2003, Vincent's infidelity and lies once again put the relationship into the blender. And Joni started to fear what Vincent might do to her. She told a couple of her friends that she feared Vincent would kill her, and if something happened to her, tell the police to look at Vincent. Vincent moved out of the house, but would later claim he still drove over to help with some house projects and visit the children. On July 2nd, six days before the bodies were found, Vincent flew to Ohio to visit his brother. He had planned on staying in the Midwest for a week, visiting family, and upon hearing the news of his family's death, he drove to a police station in North Carolina and waited for detectives to talk to him. So it's going to come out in trial, but apparently Vincent had not seen his brother for like 10 years. So it was already a little suspicious that during this trip to see family for the first time in 10 years, his entire family ends up being killed. So police are obviously already looking at the significant other for their number one suspect because that's usually the case and then if you add in the fact there's infidelity there's multiple marriages potential for multiple divorces going on here there's definitely motive for vincent to cause harm they also are going to talk with joni's friends and hear that joni was fearful of vincent was worried that he might do something to her threaten to kill her so police very quickly are going to hone in on Vincent. This whole trip to Ohio doesn't make sense to them, but again, that's not enough. They've got to actually investigate, figure out where he was during the time of the murders. So Bakersfield detectives fly out to North Carolina on July 9th, and it's said in one of the articles that Vincent just began screaming and became uncooperative. And they begin looking into his whereabouts, and they were presented with some credit card receipts showing that he made purchases in the Ohio area during the time of the murders. He also mentioned something about being involved in a traffic accident with a bicyclist. So at first, it appeared Vincent Brothers had a solid alibi. 
because he could not have been in Ohio making purchases and involved in this accident and also killed his family in California at the same time. But then investigators found a small hole in part of Vincent's alibi. His credit card statements showed that he had rented a Dodge Neon car from a rental company in Ohio after his flight landed on July 2nd. When they reached out to the rental car company, they found out that the car had been returned with an insane amount of mileage added to the odometer, somewhere around 5,400 miles. And now, I read two different numbers, and they are transposed. One said 5,400, one said 4,500 miles. I think eventually they're going to figure out that the round trip for him to go from Ohio to Bakersfield and back would be 4,500 miles or somewhere around there. And then he's going to have an additional maybe 900 miles because he's driving between Ohio and North Carolina. So I think when the car was returned, it was a total of over 5,000 miles added to the odometer in the seven days that he had the car. But ultimately, I think the reporting that I saw, I kept seeing the numbers of 4,500 miles was what they believed he added um, for driving to California. However, there's nothing criminal about driving a rental car for that many miles, but it did strike investigators as incredibly odd that Vincent would put on that many miles on a vehicle after flying to Ohio to visit with family in the area. They pulled surveillance video of the credit card transactions Vincent was using as an alibi and found that it was not Vincent using the card, but his brother. So suddenly, Vincent's alibi was no longer as airtight as it had once been. But letting your brother use your credit card and driving a lot of miles did not prove Vincent was in California at any point during those 5,000 miles of driving. For that, they needed some evidence to put him in the area in the rental car. In the days before reliable cell phone tower pings and vehicle GPS systems, investigators had to think outside the box and find a way to prove that the rental vehicle Vincent drove had been to California. And even if they were to use cell phone tower pings, because... Um, Vincent is going to have a cell phone. He left that cell phone in Ohio, and there's actually going to be a phone call made to that cell phone around the time of the murders. So this is a very clearly well-thought-out false alibi. So even if this was a crime committed today, it would be a situation where if they pinged his cell phone, it would show that it was in the Ohio area during this, these entire days because he didn't have it with him. And investigators put a hold on the rental vehicle and had it taken to an evidence garage while they searched the vehicle. Normally, it is evidence inside the vehicle that is most valuable to crime scene technicians, but in this case, it was evidence they found on the outside of the car, namely on the external portion of the radiator. Investigators noticed the radiator was covered in a thick coat of insects, evidence of a lot of driving, but they knew that Vincent had put on a lot of miles, but wondered if the insects on the radiator could tell a story. They got in touch with some entomologists who advised them that it would be possible to identify specific species of insects, and from that list they could determine where the vehicle had been driven. To rule out someone else driving the vehicle to California, investigators checked the rental history of the car and found it had been rented locally out of the Midwest, and there was no evidence the vehicle had ever driven west of the state of Michigan. And so this had me a little confused because there's actually no way at this point that they can prove that the the car drove to California and back. So I don't know how by looking at rental history, unless it was just that nobody ever rented and drove this vehicle far enough 
to get it out of the Midwest. I guess it's possible that if they looked at odometer readings for in the last whatever couple months that had been rented long enough to have this buildup of insects on the radiator, they noted that nobody, if they didn't drive it over a thousand miles, they couldn't go anywhere longer than 500 miles out of the area round trip. So I guess it's possible that in looking at these this rental history, they're able to say definitively that the vehicle stayed locally during this uh, time period prior to Vincent renting the vehicle. But they must have had some way because one thing, I don't know how much we've talked about it on, on True Blue Crime, but when investigators are looking at a case, the one thing they always have to do is play devil's advocate. They always have to look at things through a defense attorney's eyes and what type of arguments is the defense going to bring up. So they already know this is a pretty out of the box attempt to get some evidence for this case. And so they they fully expect a defense attorney to go after any evidence they gain from this. And of course, since they're trying to use insects to prove that this vehicle had left the Midwest, the first thing they have to do is prove that nobody else could have taken that vehicle because if they can't do that, the defense attorneys are just going to say anybody could have drove that, and especially if it was one of these rental vehicles that goes all over the country. If somebody rents a one-way, I know when I visited Australia in 2016, I rented a car from the Melbourne airport and turned it in at the Brisbane airport, and I want to say that was like something like 2,000 kilometers that I drove on that rental car the week that I had it in Australia. But the point is, if I drove it from Melbourne to Brisbane, and then somebody rents it in Brisbane and then drives down to Melbourne to commit a murder and then drives back to Brisbane, they're not going to be able to prove that whoever drove that car for sure drove it to Melbourne because I had just driven it from Melbourne to Brisbane. So what I'm saying is, they have to find some way in this case to definitively say the only person that could have driven this vehicle out of the Midwest was Vincent and we're going to use the insect evidence to prove that. And so the radiator was removed from the vehicle and sent to the University of California Davis to an entomologist named Dr. Lynn Kimsey who removed several dozen dead insect carcasses and parts off the radiator. She was able to identify many of the species of insects and came to several conclusions. Some of the insects found on the radiator were only native to areas west of the Rocky Mountains, and some were isolated to California and its surrounding states. This meant the car did travel to the area of California during the week that Vincent rented it. Dr. Kimsey also noted that the lack of some insect species indicated the vehicle was mostly driven through the American West at night as there was a lack of butterflies amongst the insect bodies and butterflies are not active at night. This gave investigators a timeline for Vincent's movements. They determined he traveled by air to Ohio on July 2nd and rented the vehicle. He met with his brother and gave him his credit cards with instructions to use them during the time he would be gone and to sign his name to make it appear he was making purchases in the Ohio area. Then on July 3rd or 4th, Vincent left Ohio, mainly driving at night, likely to avoid eyewitnesses, and arrived in California in time to commit the murders on Sunday, July 6th. He then drove right back to Ohio and arrived late on Monday, July 7th, or early on Tuesday, July 8th, before leaving for North Carolina with his brother. And in researching this case, I hate 
going down rabbit holes on Reddit, but it happened on this case because I just wanted to see what was being said out there. And there's a whole bunch of people online, and you're going to find this with any case. There's a reasonable amount of skepticism that can be thrown at any criminal case, and then there's the people that are just are not willing to look at reason. And so there's a whole bunch of people that are trying to defend Vincent Brothers on this case, saying, well, he couldn't have driven that distance in the amount of time that they said he did, or uh, we'll talk about it later, but there should have been some type of CCTV footage of him filling up his car, this rental car at some point along the way. And again, we'll dive into some of that later, but I just made the trip back from Florida and I put on, I can't remember how many thousands of miles driving to and from Florida. And unfortunately, when I left CrimeCon on Sunday afternoon, I had to stay at my booth until like two or three and then break it down and load up the car and then drive out of Orlando. And I did not want to stay in Atlanta or Nashville and have to deal with driving through either of those cities, dealing with the traffic the following morning. And so I ended up just driving straight through the night from Orlando all the way back to Minnesota, getting in about one o'clock in the afternoon the next day. And that was after having been up since 7 a.m. on Sunday, I think somewhere around there. So, I mean, I was up and driving and for over 24 hours straight, almost almost 30 hours straight. So it's not impossible. People like to throw out that word. It's impossible to do things. It's impossible to drive that far by yourself or it's impossible to, to make that distance. And people started using calculations online saying he would have had to drive at 70 miles an hour without stopping for gas and and all this stuff and well one of the problems is is people use the timeline that's provided by the brother saying he arrived home on monday july 7th well arriving on monday july 7th could be 8 a.m could be 4 p.m could be 11 p.m at night and there's always a possibility especially since his brother wasn't super cooperative that he actually arrived home on on Tuesday, July 8th, you know, in the middle of the night, and somebody could just say, well, he arrived home on Monday because it was still Monday when I went to bed that night, and he got home sometime during that night. So, you you know, you're talking about flexibility of upwards of 36 hours, and so you can't say specifically, hey, he arrived in town at this time, and we know the murders occurred at this time, so then we subtract mileage and hours and he had to drive 70 miles per hour because if all you need to do is add an hour two hours six hours eight hours and there's actually depending on how many hours you add out of those 36 hours you now have time for him to potentially stop and sleep you have time for him to not be driving during the day so when people get it in their mind that something is quote-unquote impossible they won't look to logic or reason to say there's no way that, that he could have done this. They're, they just go on what fits their narrative in terms of, of a timeline or whatever it might be. In this case, the timeline is pretty wide open, so I don't think you can accurately say how long you would have had to drive for in terms of if he had enough time to actually make this drive or not. And, and again, we'll talk about some of the other stuff with the video evidence later. Now, investigators interviewed Vincent's brother, who at first denied using his brother's credit cards and claimed his brother was in Ohio the entire time. 
but after being shown the surveillance video of him making the purchases, Vincent's brother came clean and said he did in fact do the credit card transactions and he did not know where Vincent was from July 3rd through July 7th or 8th. It took investigators almost a year to build the case against Vincent. In addition to the false alibi and the insect evidence, crime scene technicians also had found part of a latex glove at the scene. The inside portion of the glove was swabbed and the DNA matched Vincent, but he would later claim he did house cleaning while wearing latex gloves due to skin issues, a story that made that evidence still usable but less powerful. And we do run into this. I mean, Vincent did live in this house for a time period, and so whenever you have a homicide home invasion whatever you want to call it if your suspect is somebody who has lived there finding their dna in that home whether it be blood evidence whether it be anything is is not going to stand up in court as strong obviously as stranger dna now if you can tell a story with that evidence as in this case somebody likely to commit this murder is going to wear latex gloves or some type of gloves to prevent fingerprints and dna and you're able to say, okay, well now we found this glove with, or portion of a latex glove with your DNA in it, and your story is, well, you cleaned and used latex gloves. Yeah, it can be explainable, but at the same time, that story could also be that you wore gloves because you committed the murder. So finding his DNA in that home just via touch DNA or bodily fluid DNA can be explained away rather easily whereas this dna found in an item commonly used while committing a crime it doesn't make it a slam dunk piece of evidence but i also will argue it is still a pretty powerful piece of evidence and vincent's defense made several attempts to disrupt the investigation vincent remember he initially claimed that he was involved in that car accident in ohio on the day of the murders and he claimed to have hit a bicyclist and then fled the scene. And there's a news story about a hit and run accident involving a similar car to the one Vincent had rented. And the driver was described as a black male, but initially the suspect was not identified. As this would provide proof Vincent was in Ohio, his lawyer hired a private investigator to find the driver of the hit and run vehicle. The thought being, if the police couldn't find the driver and the private investigator couldn't find the driver, then the defense could introduce this at trial to create reasonable doubt. However, the private investigator did find the owner of the vehicle, and it wasn't Vincent, but they failed to notify the prosecution of their findings, which was a violation of discovery in the case. They would later claim they identified the owner of the car, but he wouldn't admit to driving that day. But the judge and prosecutor didn't buy the story and the judge actually threatened to investigate this and several other violations by the defense team after the trial. And this brings me back to under True Blue Crime Investigates. Your discovery has to work both ways in a trial. In order for the trial to be considered fair, both sides have to cooperate and share evidence. And the prosecution in the Austin Yogurt Shop murders, the police had evidence that the gun that one of their suspects was caught with was not the murder weapon and they specifically did not do a report on that so there would be no record of that so that it couldn't be brought up at trial because they knew that that would create a lot of doubt for the jury they would rather say that hey the 22 caliber gun was used in this crime and this suspect was caught a few days later with the 22 caliber handgun it's the same thing here where and I and I went after 
the prosecution for that when I covered the Ogre Chop murders and true blue crime investigates. And it's the same thing here. You're going to attempt to use a defense during the trial that you know is false. You know that Vincent wasn't driving that car and you've got proof of it. You've got evidence of it and you're keeping that out of the trial. And like I said, it's that eventually is going to come back to bite the defense. And we'll talk about it here when we talk about the trial, but it's, it's just another example of a lack of, of morals that are used sometimes in these trials by either in the case of the, Austin Yogurt Shop murders the prosecution, and in the case of this, the defense. And Vincent was finally arrested in April of 2004 and was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. And it was said that, you know, they're building this case against him, and I don't know, I mean, I know the DNA is going to take a while to come back, this insect report's going to take a while to come back, and it still surprised me that it took this long for them to arrest him, but it sounds like he was attempting to pack up and leave like they were worried he was going to flee either flee the country or at least flee the area and go live on the run um, so they decided to jump ahead with what they had and arrested them in april of 2004. and the trial was delayed several times due to a combination of lawyer tactics and because of the heavy media coverage of the case it finally began in january of 2007 and the prosecution told the jury in their opening arguments about the road trip and the false alibi the case was built around Vincent's continual infidelity and the desire for him to not have to pay child support for three children as a motive for the murders. The defense countered that while Vincent was guilty of infidelity, he was not a murderer. They stated cell phone evidence showed Vincent's phone was in Ohio at the time of the murders. In fact, a phone call from the Harper residence was made to Vincent's phone at 4 p.m. on the day of the murders. And again, if, if he hadn't pulled the, the shenanigans with the credit cards, I think maybe this would have a little weight in the jury's mind, but they're able to prove that he used enough foresight to have his brother use the credit cards. So how is he not going to have enough foresight to leave his phone in Ohio and then make a phone call from the residence after committing the murders to his phone? Because again, we see this when the defense wants it in their cases, though often when a, a phone is pinging in a certain area or a phone call or a text message is sent from a phone in a certain area and the prosecution wants to use as evidence that the person on trial was either in that area or using their phone in the area at the time or sending messages at that time the defense will be the first to say whoa 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 it's just a phone you can't prove who has the phone at that time you know there's, there's nothing to indicate who was actually using the phone when that occurred but in this case, they want the jury to believe, hey, you got to believe Vincent's phone's in Ohio. He's in Ohio. So it's just another one of those cases. And again, I know that the prosecution does it as well, but it's just another case where you change the situation to, to suit your narrative. And again, they tried to use this traffic accident involving the bicyclist in court, but despite them not releasing that information to the prosecutor, the prosecutor already knew that Columbus, Ohio police had located the actual driver for that accident. So the prosecution was actually able to subpoena the driver to testify during the trial and he admitted to being involved in the accident. So again, a huge backfire. Basically, the only non-proven part of his alibi is this phone. And that's a pretty weak part of the alibi. His 
it's proven that his attempt to claim that he was involved with this accident isn't true. It's proven that his use of the credit cards wasn't true. So the jury's not going to put a lot of weight into believing that the, the stuff that Vincent is offering up. The defense also claimed there was not one piece of video evidence that showed Vincent fueling up the rental vehicle between Ohio and California. And this also gets really hit up on the Reddit board saying, well, he would have had to stop for fuel, you know, at least a dozen times. And how come there isn't one shred of video evidence? Well, A, you don't know where he's stopping. If you make a cross-country drive, every single exit on the interstate, for the most part, every single exit on the interstate has a gas station or multiple gas stations. So between Ohio and California, I mean, if you wanted to count out the number of gas stations off of the route that they believe that he took, I'm going to guess that it's in the thousands, at least close to a thousand, if not in the thousands. And you don't know exactly when he's stopping and you don't know all of these gas stations, especially in 2003, whether they're going to have good surveillance of their gas pumps or any surveillance at all i mean it just depends on how well funded the gas station is and so i guess yes you police could have sent out something saying hey does anybody have evidence of this guy coming into your gas stations but again that completely relies on people to you know have a memory of this guy coming in to pay for his gas i the, this is 2003 there's still i guess pay at the pump but that would have been it would have left a credit card signature so he would have had been paying cash so he would have had to go in but still you're talking about a needle in a haystack in a field of haystacks if you're going to try to find a three to four minute clip of this guy filling up gas at one of thousands of gas stations between ohio and california so it's not that that this video wouldn't have existed it just would have been very difficult for anybody to find this video and so just because it's that difficult to find i think that shows why there wasn't evidence found of him filling up the vehicle between ohio and california and in a rare move vincent took the stand he denied any involvement in the murders and claimed he was driving around with his other brother during the three days his location was unaccounted for this prompted prosecutors to subpoena the other brother who refused to show up in court and ultimately ended up with a $100,000 arrest warrant for dodging the trial. So, you know, Vincent's going to take the stand. He's going to continue to lie. He's going to say, well, my one brother I came out here to visit that I haven't seen in 10 years, that I gave him my credit card and told him to make these purchases. He doesn't know where I was for those three days because I was with my other brother. So, of course, prosecutors can say, okay, we got to get this other brother in here. We got to get him to take an oath on the stand, get him to swear that what he's going to say is the truth, and he's going to have to tell us where uh, Vincent and him were for these three days, the, you know, the day before, during, and after the murder. And this brother doesn't show up to the subpoena and ends up getting this arrest warrant issued for, for dodging the trial. And it sounds like the trial would have ended before he was ever arrested. And, and again, creating reasonable doubt needs some foundation to it so you know, had this brother come in and testified and had he even lied on the stand and said that he was with vincent I, there's at least a little bit of a foundation there for the jury when you're throwing out accusations like this and then the the one person that can come in and provide a foundation for this doesn't show up it's not buying you a lot of 
of trust or belief with, with the jury at this point. And the trial ended on May 15, 2007, and the jury deliberated for three days before returning a verdict of guilty on all counts. On September 27, 2007, a judge ordered Vincent to be put to death for his crimes. On the day of the death sentence, Vincent's surviving daughter from his second marriage gave a victim statement and denounced her father and changed her name so she would no longer be associated with him. So she had a hyphenated last name. It was her first name and then I believe her mother's maiden name, Dash Brothers and she just had the Dash brothers dropped basically that day in court, so she would have no association with them. She basically said something to the effect that the man sitting in the chair in the handcuffs is no longer my father. He's just a nobody to me at this point. And Vincent was sent to San Quentin Prison to be executed, where he remains on death row today. His current appeal status is unknown, and California currently has a moratorium on the death penalty. Vincent Brothers is another example in a long list of people who feel the best way to escape the responsibilities of being a father is to kill everyone who they feel is a burden. Sadly, in this case, that involved his wife, his three beautiful and innocent children, and his mother-in-law, a civil rights activist hero. And we didn't talk about that much during the episode, but you know, there was a little bit of belief. This is why Ernestine had a gun, is she had gone through some of the extreme difficulty of civil rights movements and put herself out there kind of as a target during the 60s and 70s and so she was well respected now but there was still obviously a, a fear that she lived with a little bit that somebody would be coming back to get her at some point which is why she kept this revolver with her and so there was you know some early on discussion of whether this could be related to Ernestine's civil rights stuff but uh, again, that that motive never made as much sense as uh, eventually the motive they're going to figure that Vincent has and then the overwhelming evidence that Vincent made this road trip with a built-in alibi to uh, annihilate his family. And the world is a much worse place without the Harper family in it, but a much better place with Vincent behind bars. And that is the case of the Harper family murders. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.